movies, and a couple of us were talking before uh, church about movies, um, and uh, I saw a movie last night, saw the new Elvis movie, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, but uh, someone was saying, you know, do, when you watch movies, do you ever sort of imagine that you're in the movie? I don't know, is it just, you know, you kind of imagine, you know, what if I were that person? You know, what if, what if I were in that? And, and that is all really good, except when you watch that old film called The Truman Show. Does anyone know that film? So, um, uh, spoiler if if you don't, um, the key character, Jim Carrey, in in the movie, plays a regular guy. Well, he thinks he's a regular guy, except what he doesn't know is that his entire life is a movie, that he exists on the world's biggest movie set. His whole world is a movie set, and everyone in his life is an actor except him. So everyone else knows, everyone else is in on... Uh, in on the movie, except him. And so the whole, there's this, uh, in, in the real world, he thinks he's the real world, but he's not. But in the real world, people are watching this 24-7 feed of Truman's life, um, which he thinks is real life, but it's actually not. Everyone else is an actor. And if you get into movies like me, a movie like that sort of messes with your head because you start to think, well, what if that's my life? Like, what if I'm actually Truman? Like, what if you're all actors? What if this whole thing is, is put on? Which is kind of ridiculous, um, but it is a bizarre thing to start to think about, isn't it? Um, you know, what if, what if this is, you know, kind of all about me? What if this all isn't real? Because the weird thing is that all of us do actually live with this sense that the world's all about us, don't we? We, we do kind of live a little bit like the, the Truman Show. You know, we think that that this is, you know, this school is there for me, um, you know, this job's there for me, that we see ourselves as kind of the, the hero in our own story. We're in a series that we're calling Idols uh, in this church, and we're exploring some of the things that can become idols in our lives. We're using Tim Keller's definition of what an idol is. He wrote a book for, called Counterfeit Gods, where he talks all about this. And he defines an idol this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. And we've said that an idol isn't an idol because of the way it was made. We make something an idol because of the place that we give it in our lives, because of where we put it in our lives. Something becomes an idol because we choose to look for it, uh, we choose to look at it for security and for safety and for happiness and for joy and for meaning and purpose. And in this series, we've looked at a bunch of things that we can make idols out of. We've talked about making uh, an idol out of money and stuff. We've talked about uh, the idol of jobs and our careers. We've talked about uh, the idol of happiness. Happiness can actually become an idol and we, we, we kind of seek that in our lives above all else. We've talked about uh, making family an idol. We've talked about the idol of health and physical appearance. And we're going to wrap up the series today talking about what is the biggest idol of all. Bigger than money. Yep. Bigger than health and careers, definitely. Even bigger than our family. Every day. In fact, this idol is like the, uh, the ruler of all the idols. 
It's, it's like the idol that controls all the other, like the idol of the idols, uh, if such a thing existed. And that is the idol of me. I mean, not me, but uh, like the idol of you. <laughs> like, well, not you, the idol of us. The idol of ourselves, right? The thing we are most tempted to put at the centre of our lives is us. My life becomes all about me. I become obsessed with me. Your life becomes all about you. We become determined to make our own decisions, to be our own boss, to to sort of make life the way that we want to make it. We start saying things like, it's my life. I'll decide what's right and wrong for me. I'll decide how to manage my money. I'll decide what's best for my family. I'll decide what's best for me in areas of uh, of sexuality and those sorts of things. We even even start to decide what's right and wrong when we're driving in traffic, don't we? We're right and the other person's always wrong, aren't they? We can read a social media thread full of thousands of angry comments and we can decide what's right and what's wrong. And even if we don't comment, there's that little part of us that thinks, I'd really like to type in here you know, and tell people the way that this thing really is. I know what's best for my workplace better than the boss does. I know what's best for my health better than the doctor does. I know what's best for my kid's school better than the principal does. I even know what's better for my footy team than the coach does. I definitely know what's better for the country than the Prime Minister does. I know what's better for my life even than God does. I'll make my own decisions. I'll do what's best for me. It's my life and no one's going to tell me what to do with my life. Not my boss, not my parents, not the government, not even God. And friends, that is the language of the idol of me. And it's a language that we've been speaking, that that, that people have been speaking for thousands of years. It's a language that's as old as humanity itself. Our Bible is a story of God's relationship with his people. And it begins in the beginning. Uh, The book of Genesis, the first book in our Bible, is, is the beginning of the beginning. And it begins with, uh, with God creating a world, with God creating a perfect world. And God setting up people in that world to rule the world with him in partnership with God. But in Genesis chapter 3, like probably the third page uh, of a printed Bible, it all goes wrong. This is Genesis 3. I'm going to read from, from verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. The Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You'll not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from the that when you eat from it, 
Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And to cut a long, long story short, things go horribly downhill from that moment. What I want you to see in that story is that Adam and Eve's sin in that moment, that Adam and Eve's failing, wasn't murder. It wasn't theft. It wasn't failing to indicate as they exited a roundabout. All of those sins happened later. Adam and Eve's sin was to put themselves in the place of God. Did you hear that? He said, said, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll know good and evil. You'll know right from wrong. You'll be able to make your own decisions. You won't need God to show you what's right and wrong anymore. You'll be able to decide for yourself what's right and wrong. And the rest of our Old Testament part of our Bibles is the story of the mess that people create trying to live life on their own terms, trying to sort out right from wrong for themselves. It's a story full of anger and greed and jealousy and hate and violence. It's a story that all seems totally hopeless until a poor, unmarried teenage girl gives birth to a baby and everything changes. The baby, Jesus, grows up to tell the world that he is God's chosen one. That he is the son of God and he's come to set the world right again. He's come to restore the mess that Adam and Eve made way back then. To undo uh, the problems that they've created. He talks about God in new ways. He models new ways of living. He talks about putting God back in the centre of our lives. He talks about following God and listening to God first in a way that hasn't been done since way back in the beginning. He says it like this, we've quoted this a lot in this series, seek first the kingdom of God, he says, Matthew 6.33. He talks about putting God ahead of other things in our lives, even ahead of ourselves. He said this one day, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, in other words, whoever wants to follow me, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet to lose or forfeit their very self? And I want to tell you, those words, that's uh, from Luke 9, uh, verse 23, 25, those words that Luke remembers Jesus saying, those words sounded as crazy to Luke and to the people who first heard them as they do to you today. I mean, what does he mean that you save your life by losing it? That doesn't make sense, does it? If you lose your life, you haven't saved it. If you save your life, you don't lose it. 
It made no sense until Jesus modelled what he meant. Until Jesus showed everyone exactly what he meant in the most extraordinary way possible. Because not long after those words, Jesus handed himself over to be tortured and executed. And he never answered back. He never stood up for his rights. He never argued about what was, what was right and what was wrong in terms of the way it was happening to him. He gave himself over. He gave up his life and he died. And then he rose again. Three days later, Jesus came back from the dead. Jesus' life literally overcame death. Jesus' life overcame sin and death and he entered into a new kind of life, an eternal kind of life. And then he turned around and he offered that kind of new life and that kind of eternal life to everybody. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. It changed everything for everyone. Jesus gave up his earthly life in order to win an eternal life. He lost his life in order to save it. And he now invites us to do the same. And in case you missed it, this is the basis of Christianity, right? This is, this is what the Christian faith, this is what church, this is what Jesus, this is what the whole deal is all about. About 20 years after the resurrection, uh, a Paul who became a follower of Jesus and spent his time teaching and talking to people about who God was and what he wanted for their lives. Paul would describe it this way when he wrote a letter to the church in Rome, in the middle of Rome, where it is still today, in the middle of Italy. Paul would write this. This is Romans 6, uh, beginning at verse 3. Don't you know that all of you who were baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, uh, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrected life like his for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. This is the life that Jesus invites you into. The invitation of Jesus is not an invitation to live your life and believe in God. The invitation of Jesus is for you and me to die to ourselves 
to give up the idea that we're in charge, to turn away from doing life the way that we want to do life and instead to accept God's forgiveness, to follow, uh, to to accept the, the new life that he offers us, the eternal life that he offers us and to make the decision to live for him and to follow his way of living for the rest of our lives now and into eternity. Paul wrote another letter to the church in Galatia. Uh, We call it Galatians in our Bibles. And he explained it to them this way, Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He's saying Christianity is a choice. It's a choice that we get to make between will we choose to live life our own way, making our own decisions, doing what seems right to us, living a kind of life that says, I've got this. Or or will we put Jesus back in the centre of our life? Will we follow him, first of all? Will we, will we let him direct our values and our decisions? Will we do not what, what we want, but what he calls us to do? In other words, will we live a life saying, God's got this? Not I've got this anymore, but God's got this. Or maybe more accurately, God's got me. But this, this kind of God-centred life can only happen when we kill the idol of me that sits in the centre of most of our lives. This God-centred life can only happen when we choose to say, uh, when we choose to give up the sin that says, I'm in charge. This kind of God-centred life can only happen when when we give up uh, wanting to make our own decisions when we give up following our own wisdom, when we give up deciding what's right and wrong for ourselves, when we give up putting ourselves in the centre of our lives and put God in the centre of our lives instead. And let's be honest, like that's the hard part, isn't it? Because the hardest idol to dislodge from the centre of our lives, even harder than, than money and health and our job and all those sorts of things, the hardest life, the hardest idol to dislodge from the centre of our lives is the idol of you, is the idol of me, is the idol of us. And the reason it's so hard is because a million times a day we hear the message that it's all about you. You know, advertising and social media and our family and our friends, education, school, uni, they're all bombarding us all the time with a message that says, look after yourself, plan your own life. Go get what you want. You do you. Go and live your best life. And all those, that all sounds really good, doesn't it? It all seems to make really good sense, except it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And as crazy as it is to say, as crazy as it sounds to say, Jesus is right when he says, If you want to save your life, you have to lose it first. If you want to really live your best life, you have to give it away. You have to lose it in order to get it. And that sounds kind of risky for some of us, doesn't it? 
I know it does for me because I like to be in control. You know, I like to make my own decisions. I like to know where I'm going. There's things that I want in life. Do I really want to give those things up? But Peter was there when Jesus was resurrected. And he made that decision and he would say to you, it is absolutely worth it. History tells us that Peter was crucified too. The people were so, you know, there was so much angst around this, this message of Jesus and the resurrection. You know, and Peter was telling us about it and he was arrested and he was crucified. And even though that happened to him, he would say to you if he were here today, it is absolutely worth giving up your life to follow Jesus. Paul and Mary and James and John and all of those other early followers, all those names you read about in the Bible, they would say to you, and some of them did write it down, we've got it in what we call our Bible, they would say to you, it's absolutely worth it. They didn't have stuff, they weren't rich, they weren't famous. Many of them got killed for following Jesus too. But they would say it was all absolutely worth it. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Giving up everything to follow Jesus is absolutely worth it, no matter what happens. And you know, ever since that time, history is full of thousands and millions, like untold numbers of people who've put to death their old self in order to accept the new life that Jesus offers them. They've given up everything to follow him. They've died to themselves so that they can live for Christ. They've dedicated their lives to serving him, to listening to and to learning and to understanding what he wants of them and to living their lives after that. And those people would say, millions of people over thousands of years would say, it's absolutely worth it. And that's the question I want us to talk about today. I want us to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth it and are we prepared to do it? Because it's not a one-time decision, right? You don't just, you know, this isn't a moment now where you stick a hand up and you say, yep, I do it, and then you go back on with your life. This is a daily decision. I don't know if you noticed in that, uh, in those words for Romans 6, uh, Paul talked about dying daily for Christ. Because we all know how this works, isn't it? You know, you, you kind of make a decision and then what happens the next day and the day after that, that idol of self just kind of sneaks back in there, doesn't it? It just sort of slides in there. It's a slippery thing like down a slope. You know, it just slides back into the centre of your life. This is why we talk in this church and why lots of Christians talk about, you know, reading the Bible and prayer uh, and doing those things daily as a way just to recommit yourself daily to say, this is the kind of life I want to live. Every day when I wake up, I'm going to say, today is not about me. Today, your will be done, as Jesus taught us to pray. I'm going to put to death the me part of me, and I want to live for Christ. I want to live for Jesus today. I want to follow him today. It's one of the reasons why 
over those thousands of years, um, Christians have continued to take what we call communion. We're going to do that today. We talk about this in this church a lot. Communion was never meant to be a snack in church to keep you amused. The bread and the wine, the bread and the juice that we take in communion, Jesus said represent his body and his blood. And they are designed to refocus us on the person of Jesus, to refocus us on his death and on his resurrection. That's what communion is all about. It's a moment to allow you to say, you know what? I want the new life that Jesus offers me. I want to put aside myself. I want to lose my life in order to save it. I want to, with Jesus, to enter in, as Paul says, to enter into his death. That's what we're doing when we're taking the, the body and the blood to remember what Jesus did on the cross, to enter into that so that we can come out the other side of that as resurrected, eternal people the way that Jesus did. Dudes, that is good news, right? That is pretty cool. 